Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. And Daniel. Say hi, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. This afternoon, we're joined by a very special guest, director, writer, producer, and the humble host of the Postmortem podcast, Mr. Mick Garris. Mick, how the hell are you? Greetings, everyone. Very, very well. Thank you very much. It's great to uh, join your party. Get off of that. All right, I'm going to go ahead and do it like this, dude. Mick, this is like one of Justin's biggest, like a couple of years ago when we were talking about this website and he was talking about setting it up. And I was just basically just telling him, it's like, yeah, we should start a podcast and do it. It's really fun. Let's jump in. You've been like primary target for the longest time. <laughs> Don't let him fool you. Like, this is Monsters Madness Magic Podcast. And I'm Justin. I'm so cool. He's flipping shit inside. Just to let you know. Now, I'll let you know because I'm a fan of yourself. You're dealing with a turbo fan right here. So, I just, yeah. well, that's good to know. <laughs> Forewarned is forearmed. Yeah. What what microphone <laughs> is that? This is an Elgato Link Three, and I used to use the Yeti, the Blue Yeti, uh -huh. but uh, but I like this one more. It has more range, and it's light, and it's really nice. It I, it's a really good. My, yeah, you sound great, but it you don't have any kind of padding or anything in your room. So just, sorry, no, I'm a sound no. guy. I had to comment on the mic. That thing sounds great. It really does. That's fancy. Mick, take us back in time. So when you were a youngster, what sort of films, fiction, books, comics, et cetera, would you say help jumpstart your creative juices? Well, my, my first real passion was, uh, of course, the Universal Monster movies, but also around the time I was 12 years old, I, I discovered Ray Bradbury and I read everything that he wrote, everything just devoured it. By the time I was 13, I was a walking, talking Ray Bradbury expert. And by the time I was 16, I got to interview him for my school paper and that and the same year i interviewed rod serling and twilight zone of course was a oh. seminal influence on me and so yeah so the, those were those were the doors that opened the world of the fantastic to me and i loved cartoons my first thing i wanted to do was to become a cartoonist my father was a schooled artist and very very good but he never got to make his living at it never made a penny doing art and so i inherited a fraction of his artistic talent but then once i started writing i kind of gave up the drawing completely because that felt more like home to me so young mick garris when you're getting the opportunity to, to interview these guys what's going on internally are you freaking out <laughs> yes and no you know the idea that they had come to the local junior college to speak and it was public and not that many people you know they knew who they were and they wanted to hear them speak but they didn't really know people like we know people now because of podcasts because of the accessibility of people electronically you feel this kinship 
relationship to people that you don't know and have never met because you you witness intimate interviews like this one and it fe- it's in your home or where, your office and it feels quite natural. In those days, it didn't seem impossible because I was naive. Ray Bradbury was coming to Grossmont College where I went after high school and I went and I talked to the people at the college about interviewing him for my school paper and they set it up and I was the only one interested in interviewing him. So after this presentation in in the auditorium, they set me up in a chair on the other side of a table on the stage. And it was just like that with Rod Serling, you know, a couple of months later. That is unreal guy to be Rod Serling. Holy crap. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And then later on, I began to do music journalism. And I interviewed when I was a teenager, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Frank Zappa and lots of dead rock stars. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Before becoming a, a rock and roll performer myself for about eight years. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The horse feather quintet. Uh, you just People made it always somebody somewhere wrote the horse feathers quintet, but it was just horse feathers. There were five of us, but we were not we were not the horse feathers quintet. So let me set the record straight. It's just the horse feathers. Gotcha. Just horse feathers. No the no quintet. What do you play? I was the lead singer and I played some claw keyboards and some rhythm guitar, but I'm I'm not an instrumentalist. It was my voice was my instrument. Dude, okay. Do you still sing at all or do you have no interest in it? You know, I haven't sung professionally in decades. However, 50 years after the band formed, we formed in 1970 and in 2020, we went back and got a bunch of our best demos from the day and we recorded new overlays of vocals and instrumentation on them and released our first album last year called Symphony for a Million Mice. And it does not sound like it was recorded in the 70s. But uh, so that was the only time I've really sung with any intent other than shower singing or in the car or something. Is that on Bandcamp? It's not on Bandcamp, but it is on Apple Music. It's on Google Play. It's on every every streamer. And if you go to horsefeathersmusic.com, you can get a signed CD. Awesome. So did your love of music and movies sort of culminate at the same time? Did one lead to the other? Yeah. You know, movies and television were my first love. I think that's what you grow up with before you meet the music that changes your life. And at the time I was in junior high school or middle school when the Beatles happened. And so that changed the world more than anyone today can imagine any musical act could, because it wasn't just the world of music that changed, but they changed the society in a huge way. And they led to the unconventional people having a voice, which had not happened before. And so that was really a big deal. And then later, as I got deeper into music criticism, and journalism, I got into prog rock, which was stuff that was much more complicated than your three chord power pop tunes that were so popular from the 60s through now. And it it was as much intellect as it was heartfelt. And groups like Gentle Giant and Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer Mm -hmm. were the ones that excited us the most. Yeah. What flipped the switch when you said, I want to make a movie? What was it that did that for you? Well, I started out writing and I wrote several scripts before anything happened. I never thought it would be possible, but I was born in LA, grew up in LA and briefly in San Diego. And then came back to LA with the band right after college. And, you know, I really wanted to make a go of it as a screenwriter. And I read about writing and I just started writing. I was reading scripts and loving movies and the like. And it was only once I started to be paid as a writer, Steven Spielberg being the first person to hire me to write screenplays for amazing stories, that opened the door to me thinking maybe I could direct as well. Because they're totally different disciplines. You know, writing is me sitting in 
in this room you see me in and alone typing, working entirely internal process. Whereas directing is an entirely social process where you're working with maybe a hundred or more people at a time and having to have answers for the thousands of questions you get every day and having to be able to communicate with actors and crew how you feel this movie is best going to work and convey the vision that to get them to share it with enthusiasm. So they're very different disciplines and not everybody can walk both sides of that fence. Which would you prefer? There's no wrong answer, but just you yourself, yeah. which do you prefer writing or directing? It's interesting because when I've been like after doing the stand, I was away from home for a year directing the stand. And I thought, God, I really need to rest. I just want to write. I don't know how much more I want to direct. But then once you're sitting there and have written a couple of scripts, and boy, I really miss being on the stage and I really miss that interaction. So quite honestly, I love them equally and to not do either one of them would break my heart. What was the movie then? But, you know, you're writing and directing, but I mean, we all have, like, all right, I'll go first. Just say what, like what just started the barrel rolling, which as a kid in the eighties was cartoon. So for me, it was He-Man. So naturally I saw Conan the Barbarian at an incredibly too young age to see it <laughs> and immediately fell in love. Yeah. And then, you know, and I did publicity on that movie, seeing those. And it's like, okay, I got to do this. So like for you, what was that light switch moment? Well, it was probably Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead, the <laughs> Good things answer. That, you know, my, my wonder years. Um, <laughs> and Spielberg was a huge influence on me. You know, if you look at Critters 2, that's my most Spielbergian movie, because Love I think the reason too. they hired me was because they got a twofer. <laughs> They got a writer and director to do the rewriting and directing. And the first Critters was mildly Spielbergian. And I thought, I think they probably thought some of the Spielberg would rub off on me, would rub off on their movie. And so I, I have to admit, he was a huge influence on me as a filmmaker, you know, the stylistically, story and visual technique, both being equally important. Often people want to do just cool shots or splattery shit or whatever other people, the, the the script is more important, but I think there's a balance there that Spielberg has found that was a big influence to me. Interesting you say that because Spielberg almost in a way has a Bradbury and Serling combined feel with his flick. Yeah, and the sense of wonder. That's a very good observation. Serling knows how to lull you along in this false sense of security and just pull the rug out from under you. He was probably my favorite, one of my favorite screenwriters, but Bradbury, as you said, with the fantasy stuff that Bradbury could just pull out of his butt, he'd just stand up and pull out a premise of the fantastics yeah. spielberg it is just whenever you mention your love of bradbury and serling but now that you talk about spielberg it, it makes sense to me it's like, well of course you, naturally you would gravitate to spielberg because he's like a reserve rod serling if you will <laughs> right and and he was the first guy to hire me as a screenwriter and, <laughs> and that always helps <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons they probably hired me because I wrote in that vein. I wrote in that that world of the sense of wonder that Bradbury and Serling and Spielberg certainly lived in. And, you know, he grew up in Phoenix. I lived in Phoenix briefly as a kid. And even though I, I was born and raised in L.A., it was in the San Fernando Valley, which at that time could have been the Midwest. You know, it's like mm. over the hill from Hollywood. I, I felt that kind of small town removed from major society kind of life. It was a very blue collar upbringing that I'd had. And, you know, my parents split up at a pretty early age, as did Spielberg's. And I think so many writers 
or creatives were brought up in broken homes. And it was a way that they found solace from the pain that was going on within their, their home lives. So what brought you to doing adaptations, especially Stephen King adaptations? Well, I think, again, finding King, we were very simpatico. You know, Spielberg has the ability to go really dark, but he's never broken through that. He once said to me, I have ideas that would make David Cronenberg blush, but I can't do them because of who I am. I'm thinking, you know, you could do them because of who you are. Exactly. But, <laughs> but then Stephen King has that dark side that I also possessed and was always drawn to in childhood. You know, the uh, O. Henry type stories, you know, Tales from the Crypt preceded me by a few years. But when I finally got my hands on those things that I couldn't see because of the comics code of the 50s and 60s, I just loved that stuff. And I loved horror movies. And, you know, the 60s were a time when independent horror movies started coming out like Night of the Living Dead that wrestled with darker issues and were more explicit. And King was someone who could express that without restraint, without self-restraint. And I was asked to write a short story for a compilation called Silver Scream, which was a, what they called then in the 80s, a splatterpunk movement. And so David Scow was the editor and there were people like Skip Inspector, King, Clive Barker. And I tested myself. I said, I don't know if I can be this unfiltered myself with my fiction because I'm kind of buttoned up and I just let her rip. And it turned out to be the story was a life in the cinema, which turned out to be probably the most explicit, horrifically grotesque story in the whole book. So it was like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> and it's very freeing. You know, you, you tap into the dark shit, you tap into the nightmares. It's not only therapeutic for yourself, but for those you share it with. I was going to ask you, since you did that the first time, did it, was it like opening the dam? And then you haven't been able to stop since essentially. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. Even when I was 12, I was writing short stories, like, you know, a guy who gets buried alive and then he finally breaks through the splintered wood with all of his fingernails torn off and everything. This is at 12 years old mind you and oh and breaks through only to have a dozen hungry rats crawl in <laughs> that was us too you know whenever we grew, we had scary stories telling the dark which that just blew up the public school book fairs and everything with the artwork itself we used to get i try to collect them and when i say try to collect i've only been able to find one because you don't know the titles of them but i love those pulp horror anthology books that you might could find you'd find on the bottom shelf at the book fair in school i'm trying to find them to collect them usually they would have some form or another like some grotesque old hag on the cover like missing an eye or something holding the lamp and pointing <laughs> at the house behind her like did you see my house and it was it would have all kinds of, you know, small short stories and stuff. Just like you said, Mick, like with the comics and stuff. We grew up seeing things like that or the rad box covers in the movie store going to rent a movie when we were Of course, I'm too young to rent anything that was like that. My mama would kill me. Right. But man, just stroll the aisle and just look at some of those covers like Nightmare on Elm Street 3 or City of the Living Dead. Stuff yeah. like that. It's cool to see that it, it's generational. <laughs> so you had Yeah, well, you also had entry material like Goosebumps and Fear Street, which we didn't have when I was a kid, you know, so you, you had this stuff, you know, and, and I even got to write something that turned out to be kind of horror entry material for a whole generation, and that's Hocus Pocus. You know, right. Oh my God. Yeah, dude. That would be a whole nother podcast episode topic <laughs> to talk about you with Hocus Pocus. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, you are responsible. <laughs> it's my fault. I'm sorry. It's your fault. No, sorry, not sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mick, just to kind of zoom in on, you were talking about your uh, filmmaking earlier. I wanted to ask you, what are the main differences for you? Do you have a preference when it comes to working in for a television movie or a studio film? What are the primary well, differences there? Well, that's a, a really good question because I've never had the opportunity to do a big studio movie. You know, Sleepwalkers was a studio film, but it was a small studio film. I've never worked in that $200 million budget movie. Uh, so it's either work in the lower end of the feature films or the upper end of television. And television has grown up a lot over the last several years since I started working. You know, people who worked in movies never wanted to work in television, but there's been kind of a reversal. Feature <laughs> films now are comic book movies. They're, you know, they're just big franchises where it's hard to see the identity of the filmmaker being portrayed on the screen in those stories. Whereas in television, you know, Masters of Horror was unique in its time 15 years ago because it was giving all of these great filmmakers the opportunity to do it without censorship and without any rules. And it was anthology in the truth. They reflected the personality of their filmmakers. So doing high end like The Stand and The Shining and Bag of Bones miniseries versus doing some part of a studio franchise, whether it's The Conjuring or Saw or anything like that, you know, I far prefer being able to do an original project yeah. than to do chapter four in something that's getting long in the two. Right, right. Just TV now is so much better than it was when I started, but yeah. I got spoiled because I got to work with 800 pound gorillas like Steven Spielberg and Stephen King, <laughs> who kind of said, nah, lay off. Yeah. Let yeah. the kid do what he does. Yeah. <laughs> you already mentioned Masters of Horror, so I'm just going to jump into it. My favorite episode is Hakel's Tale, and you've already revealed uh, that that was going to be directed by George Romero. So my question is, how do you think that episode would be different if George would have directed it? I'm not sure. You know, the director of Henry did it. Now I'm spacing on his name, which is unforgivable. I but, just had it. I've lost yeah. it myself. A really terrific director who did a uh, John uh, uh, McNaughton. John McNaughton. John McNaughton. Yes. Yeah. How could I forget that? It's age. Uh, it's age. The memory goes first. But John <laughs> McNaughton did a great job. But first, it was going to be for Roger Corman. Oh. Because, you know, I'd gotten a story from Clive Barker that had never been published. And I thought this is like a Poe story. Wouldn't it be great to do with Clive Barker and Roger Corman what Roger Corman did with Richard Matheson and Edgar Allan Poe? And right. it's the same period. And so I wrote it as if I were Richard Matheson writing for Roger Corman. And it came out really great, you know, but Corman at 80 years old at the time, he's now, what, 95 or something and still going strong. But at 80 years old, he said, I'm not sure I want to be in a graveyard in Vancouver at 3 a.m. working <laughs> in the elements. And so then it went to George and it was thrilling because we were going to have George. If you do a show called Masters of Horror and you don't have George Romero in it, you know, it's hard to justify that. But because of his schedule, it didn't work out. He was supposed to do another movie and that movie fell through after we'd already gotten into pre-production with McNaughton. You know, John took it probably in a more sexual way. There was sexuality in the script that I'd written, but George's movies are rather chaste in that regard. They go for it, but they're rarely very sexual. And this was something that McNaughton really, you know, if you've seen Wild Things, you know the eroticism that he's capable of putting into his movies. And so it, it became a little more of that than I think George would have put in. But it would, and plus, in a way, I was glad because George was only allowed to make zombie movies. 
And here was a zombie movie yet masters of horror. And it was like, you know, he'd be great for this, but is this what he's happiest with? You know, he's, he's lived with the undead right. his entire career. So I'm not glad that he didn't do it, but I think it might've been a relief for him to not do another zombie movie. Just jumping back in time real quick. You made a number of making of films, like some heavyweights in the eighties, the thing, Halloween, <laughs> Goonies. Goonies. Yeah. Goonies. <laughs> this is all before you even directed your first film. So did you pick up a lot of insights filming those that you kind of carried over to your own career? I, I really learned a lot by watching directors working with their crew. One of the things I learned most, you know, people, you sit with your production designer and your director of photography and you plan it out away from everybody else. So away from the eye of the making of crew. But what I did find invaluable is that all directors work differently and just how they work with their cast and crew to get their best work out of them. It definitely had an influence on me and how, you know, I, I believe the best way to get the best work out of your, your people is to instill enthusiasm in them, to respect them and to welcome them to contribute their best work instead of being an autocrat. I learned a lot from that. And I also learned how to take unrelated pieces of film and put them into a narrative form because with documentary, you just shoot what you get and then you have to build something out of it. You have to sculpt a narrative, even though it's eight or 10 minutes long out of the four or five hours of material you've got i feel like you actually nick got a jump on what because we had like a renaissance of tv and i honestly don't know when it started whether it would be lost or if you would say the sopranos i don't know which came first and i kind of don't care but yeah. the fact that you were doing masters of horror so and <laughs> you did the stand so you've kind of had a you've been preparing <laughs> you've been preparing for this your whole life <laughs> and I just I feel like your moment is now. So now that everything has transitioned into TV, I mean, you've already mentioned before you can get better stories and stuff. Do you feel like you would kind of swerve more to TV, or again, do you just not care and you'll just kind of take whatever comes your way? Or I mean, what, well, what's whatever, your feelings on the matter? The best material that's available to me, you know, so far the best material that I've been able to connect with has been in television. But TV really changed. You know, fortunately we had. Stephen King, he wrote the screenplay for The Stand. And before that, most horror was not on television, was not written and directed by people who knew and loved horror. It was written by people who wrote and directed dramas and comedies and uh, westerns and all that. And so I was somebody who was quite simpatico with King's world and had read everything he'd written the day it comes out, you know. So having him, one of the first rules that they gave us was no open eyes on court. The dead people all have to have their eyes closed. Well, that's silly. And in the opening titles, right in the opening titles, as the camera is roaming through this, this medical, military medical base where the Captain Trips has been created and escapes from, there's a dead woman scientist with her eyes like this, and the camera just goes right into her face. And <laughs> that was our middle finger in the eye of ABC. But, but I think HBO. Fantastic opening. Uh, I've ever seen just that whole video. Love. That's one of my favorite miniseries, period, period. But that opening sequence set to Don't Fear the Reaper. Oh, thank you. So much. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that song 
King had written into the into the script. And, you know, it was, we were playing it as we shot all of those shots in the montage and everything. So everyone was into it, even though they were dead. You know, what, but what I was going to say is that HBO is the reason for television changing. People could suddenly watch R-rated material on TV and the networks had to compete with that. And it really opened things up a lot. Plus having Stephen King's name in the title, Stephen King's The Stand, ABC figured, you know what you're in for because this guy goes for it. Mm -hmm. And we went for it. Now you you've mentioned before like you don't do the the multi-million dollar film so obviously you had to learn to make chicken salad out of chicken shit it's just it's <laughs> I'm a musician it's what we do trust me I know right. so now that we have transitioned into this brave new world of TV series and stuff like that and of course studios are wanting to shrink their budgets as tight as possible and give nothing and rely everything is a comp shot now there is no practical whatsoever I mean do you feel like that you can thrive even better in this kind of environment now because you know how to work with a small budget and I mean, you know how to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. I think if you work on a limited budget, budget, you don't have the shortcut of buying an answer. You have to use your ingenuity and your creativity. And that's why independent films are often so much more creative and interesting and have the stamp of their creators on them rather than feel like a franchise. Not always. You know, a lot of times a movie like Suicide Squad could never be made on a tight budget. And whatever you feel about that, you know, it's because they had a ton of money to do it. Enough so that James Gunn's personality does shine through in in one of his movies, Mm -hmm. that or Guardians of the Galaxy and the like. But I've never, the only time in my entire career that I felt I had enough money to do it right was on The Shining. And that was great because it was all mostly enclosed in one location that was a location and sets on a soundstage, uh, a very limited cast and a very healthy budget because it followed The Stand and The Stand was the highest rated miniseries ever. So Warner Brothers and ABC put a little more money per hour into The the Shining than they did The Stand. And the producers were much more willing to open their purse strings and and do it right. But I think even, you know, Jim Cameron with his Avatar sequels probably wish he had more money than he's getting for that, even though they're hundreds of millions of dollars. There's never a time when you feel there's enough. Just like there's never a time where you feel okay i'm done making this movie but you have to you have to be finished and and move on to what's next yeah but necessity is the mother of invention so exactly having to find these shortcuts and things because sometimes i (laughs) this is no i've never even met frank darabont but you're the the way you talk about knowing stephen king's material and stuff you're like an exuberant frank darabont because if i were to put you and him in the room you're going to be the first person to grab a rubber band, pull it on a lawn chair, pull it back, shove a lawn dart at him <laughs> in Mortal Kombat. Because it's just, it seems the way that you're willing to adapt to the screenplay mentality. So that it's yeah, just, well, Frank's a great fun. guy. I'm, I'm sure he is. This is this isn't a, a slam, yeah. but trying yeah. to compare the two of y'all together, because whenever I think of it, all I think of is you and the stand and then Darabont with the miss. And it's just the stand and the yeah. miss. They're both great. They're both, and you actually hold, I hold them, you, you should hold them as pylons of that, of the King material. One being a major feature film, one being like highest rated grossing TV series. When you hold them together, it's like, great, but I can still see the differences. Yeah, it's like where Darabont is 
preserved and doing story. And I mean, it is meticulous. And you're just like, the stand. Hell yeah. Eyes open on the corpses. Zoom in more on that. Hey, bring up Don't Fear the Reaper. All right, let's go. Take that ABC. Okay. Hi. I'm sorry. Well, please carry on. <laughs> I got to tell you, the mist was made on a very tight budget. That was, was probably it? probably the tightest budget he'd ever had mm. since doing, uh, you know, a, a recent movie I've made, Nightmare Cinema, is also by far the lowest budget I've ever had to work with. I have we, not seen that. I want to see that. It, it's time. It's on Shutter. It's five stories from five different filmmakers. And we made that all shot in Los Angeles for $2 million. And wow, what, what we got out of that, I mean, I, I'm very proud of that movie and all the people who made it. You know, it, it kicks ass. Mick, when it comes to the King adaptions, how much input or involvement does Steven have or does he want any? Well, he wrote the screenplay for The Stand and The Shining. He wrote the original screenplay for Desperation when it was going to be a movie and to expand to television, but is actually a part of it, where he was actually executive producer in function as well as in title. Mm -hmm. uh, but later on, you know, Bag of Bones, he was not very involved. And the later stuff, not as much, but he's as, as involved as he wants to be. And that's yeah. great. Yeah, that's a great position to be in. If you want to uh, you step know, in, you can. If not, just fuck it. Get out of my face with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. And I've said it before, because I've done so many King things, people think that I'm King's bitch, that <laughs> I, I do his bidding. But the fact is, he's never once told me how I thought he thought I should direct a scene or write a sequence or whatever. But I have gone to him and say, what do you think about this? And, you know, he's the greatest resource in the world to have on yeah. set. Why not ask him? Yeah, just why not ask the man? <laughs> Yeah. in general you know he seemed yeah. to be one of the authors. You know how most people, it's the same way when you're adapting a film from a book or in this case from a video game. It's like, well, you know, you want it, it's got to be exactly like that. It wasn't like that. The game, it's like, well, play the freaking game. You're here to watch a movie. He seems to be one of the few authors, at least that I've read about, who is kind of, it's a screenplay about the material that he wrote, but he doesn't seem to really care if it deviates slightly because he wrote his story and he's given his film. I mean, is he actually like that or is it, Am I just completely misreading it? Because I feel like I have read something where he kind of mentioned that. He's just so. In other words, he's not breathing down your necks. So, all right, Nick, you better do this just right because I wrote it like Never. this. And this is how it's supposed to go. He's not like that. Not, not once, but he he's very much a guy who knows that prose and cinema are different media. And, you know, I, I've mentioned this several times that Richard Matheson once said to me that books are internal and film is external. And so King, in adapting his own material, and I've adapted some of his material myself, he realizes that the media are different and they require different handling. So he's the most understanding guy in the world because people talk about fucking up one of his books or stories. And he just says, the book, the story, it has hasn't changed a bit. It's right here on my shelf. The movie may not have done it right or may have gone in wrong directions, but it doesn't have any effect on the book itself. So he knows the difference between the two. Right. It's just an interpretation. I mean, that's all it's and, and it's a director's interpretation of a book or a video game onto a film. And yeah, I mean, I'm like, and especially at this point now, I don't care if I like the movie groovy. I don't care mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> if I really care. I'll go and read the book or not. It just, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think, you know, night demon, then the night demon heavy metal podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented 
all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. We spoke with Steven Kyoto recently, and he spoke for ah. a good while about the giant critter ball in Critter Two and how it was actually 10 to 12 feet in scale. So what were your thoughts when you first laid eye on that beauty? Oh, well, it was <laughs> great. Well, first of all, there were two versions. One was an inflatable ball that was just hollow and like a balloon with pelts covering it. And the other one was mechanical that had remote control critter faces biting and biting and things like that. So the one you see rolling over and devouring a guy's body and leaving a skeleton behind, that's the balloon. And if you look closely, you can see it when it first enters the town, you can see two pairs of legs of guys pushing it <laughs> when it first goes into the town. But the the more articulated one, it caught it it was like a ton and a half or or something. And it was put on a spoke that was connected to the truck that the actors were, were running. And so it would come closer and further away and the thing would, all the mouths would bite and all that. So there were two different things, but it was a piece, a, a thing of beauty. I mean, the Kyotos are, are masters and, and, you know, they're, they're like the three stooges in a way. <laughs> they, they bicker a lot when things get tight, but they're great. They're all really talented, all really funny. And that movie cost 4 million bucks, but there's $10 million worth of beauty in there. <laughs> yeah. You know, man, I associate those critters. That, those are my childhood films. Uh, so I have to ask mm -hmm. because now he's sort of underground and he hasn't worked much since. So what what was your experience like with Don Opper filling Critters 2? Because he's sort of the face of that franchise. Yeah, well, he's also one of the producers. He and his brother Barry were, were two of the producers on the movie. Barry was more the businessman. Don is an eccentric guy. I haven't seen him in years. Uh, I don't know what he's been doing for the last 30 years or so. But, you know, he's, he's eccentric and like many people who play comedic roles is quite quiet. I can, off I can see that. Not like Eddie Deason. Eddie Deason is exactly the same on screen as off <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry I just, all i'm hearing don, is van dark don opper is is a guy who eddie decent you know yeah what do you want you what do you want me to do you want me to shoot this guy no no don't pull the trigger okay okay i won't pull the <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's hilarious. Is there any chance of that critter ball still around somewhere? I'm sure it's in the Kyoto shop, not in mine. I have a couple of <laughs> I have a couple of critters in my office here, but one of them is at the Mopop Museum in Seattle, where they've taken really good care of it and refreshed it, and it looks just like new, and it's on display there next to my Michael Jackson thriller costume that I wore as a zombie in that. Oh yeah, Ooh. just oh, tell that story real quick. How did you get in the Michael Jackson thriller video? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, John Landis, the director, and I. Have 
have been good friends since the 70s when he was making Animal House and I was answering phones for the original Star Wars in the office next door. So we became friends. And later on, Rick Baker and I became friends and my wife and he and his wife and all. And so when they were making Thriller, it was every makeup effects artist in town was working on it and mostly costuming themselves. But they're also doing the dancers and what they called close-up zombies. And John and Rick asked us if we wanted to be these zombies in Thriller, never knowing it would become the biggest music yeah. video of all time. It was so much fun. My <laughs> wife shot for three days in it. I only shot for one day, but I'm in it plenty. If you want to, if you want to see me, I'm the very last zombie to come up from under the ground and go like, like this. And uh, <laughs> I've grown into it. Now I look like that for real. <laughs> So from a production standpoint, what would you say has been the most challenging project you've worked on until date? Oh, by far the stand. There's there's no question. That was 100 days of shooting. It was 20 weeks. The first 13 weeks were five-day weeks, and the last seven weeks were six-day weeks. Mm. And, you know, normally you use the weekends for your homework and to do your laundry and stuff. But when you're on six-day weeks, there's no time for anything because every day the shoot, the start time is later during the week, and then you have to start over again at the beginning. Start shooting at 7 a.m. on Monday, and you finish at 5 a.m. on Saturday. And so your turnaround is starting again at 7 a.m. on Monday. Well, when it's a six-day week, you don't even have that. That turnaround. So it's, it's it, you'll find yourself shooting day scenes on a stage in the middle of the night because you have to. But we shot 100 days, 126 speaking parts, six states, outdoors, stunts, animals, visual effects, special effects, locations, jumping locations every couple of days. Sometimes we'd shoot two locations in a day after taking the caravan of all of the cast and crew and all of that. All of it was really difficult every single day. You start with a hundred days. I was away from home for one year. The post-production was five months in New York and I'm a native Angelino. So that was by far the hardest mm. work of all. And then probably desperation was very similar, but it didn't last as long and there weren't as many moving parts. So both of those were real tough when you shoot extensive outdoor location work. And that's rough stuff. This is just rapid fire. There's no wrong answer. Just curious. Right now, you could pick to do any movie you want. What movie would you make right now? Like you could write it, direct it, whatever. What would you do? Well, I wrote a novel called Salome that is a neo-noir. It's a Hollywood desert noir murder mystery. And I would love to adapt that to the screen. There's not a big market for Hollywood neo-noir murder mystery movies right now. There was in the 90s, but uh, this book came too late for that. But it's also one of the reasons I write books as well as make movies, because after being exhausted by Olong, you know, I can sit and write something that's all meant to be put on the page. And there's nothing nothing between me and the reader, but the words themselves. There's no budget. There's no schedule. There's no egos. There's no animals and kids and everything complicated. It's ju just you and your imagination and, and the final page, whether it's printed or electronic. Well, you do podcasting. So have you ever thought about doing audio drama? I, I do audio drama like every year for October, I do a like a horror, but just curious since you have been podcasting and stuff like and with you writing, I'm just curious, you ever thought about doing audio drama stuff, mainly because that they released Alien 3, the one that should have had, they actually released right. that in audio drama form not too long ago. And uh, I'm fixing, to, I cannot wait to start plowing through that one. But I was just curious if you ever thought about doing that, like you say, you're neo-noir, maybe adapted yeah. for an audio drama. You know, it's at a middle ground. I would, for me personally, I'd rather write a book or a movie. 
<clears throat> the audio drama, because I have a visual sense when I'm writing drama to be spoken, you know, it's usually to be on the screen. I love cinematography. I love lenses and color and working with actors and moving them around. And uh, I've never tried the audio drama format. I've been asked to do it a couple of times and then they, the ideas fell through. I don't rule it out, but usually if I'm not going to write a movie, I'll probably write uh, fiction. I'm starting to see that more and more now. You're seeing audio dramas because of the podcast market. Everybody is, you know, doing a podcast and stuff and audio dramas and RPG actual plays are really starting to, as they call it, mooning. And yeah. So I just was curious if you were in it. That's all. Well, if I'm going to do something that doesn't make me any money, I'd rather do a book. <laughs> <laughs> Good well answer. Said. Well said. Good answer. <laughs> In the, and I the, do plenty of that or a podcast <laughs> <laughs> on the subject of turning chicken shit into chicken salad. You mentioned on one of your post, the early postmortem Q and A's that the budget for Freddy's nightmare was extremely low. And I want to ask how low and what was your general <laughs> experience like on that? Doing that? I was never told the budget, but you know, I did the second one they ever shot like the stand. It was shot on 16 millimeter to save money, but unlike the stand, and it did not have resources for other levels of the creative muse. I, I don't know what it is. So yeah, when I said that Nightmare Cinema was the cheapest thing I'd ever worked on, I forgot about Freddy's. <laughs> I would expect they were well. There were great people doing them. You know, Toby Hooper did the first one. And I introduced Toby and Tom McLaughlin and Bill Malone to Gil Adler, who was the producer of the series. And so they all did episodes of this show. And, and it was great fun. But I think it was six days to shoot an hour and that's not much. And each of the hours was split into two stories. So most of the cast was completely different and the sets were completely different and locations. So it was a machine. You don't <laughs> want to see the ingredients of the sausage. <laughs> <laughs> so so with masters of horror you mentioned that the you had a dv deal with showtime and they were footing uh, 10, with anchor bay yeah right and they were footing 10 10 of the bills so they really couldn't have any creative input right right showtime licensed it for two hundred thousand dollars an episode so they didn't it, they didn't own it and they paid so little of the show, which was a $2 million budget for every episode that we were able to say, look, if you're getting John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and Takashi Miike and uh, all these great people, William Malone, and Stuart Gordon, so many great people, you at $200,000 an episode, you don't have the right to tell them. And they were fine with it. They were very supportive of the air. Have you ever been in a situation where the shoe has been on the other foot where you felt like studio or a financer has had too much creative input on your one of your projects i've never really had that problem you know i i'm a pretty convivial guy i'm very much a collaborator in the process if i'm working for disney on halloween house also known as hocus pocus i know who my audience is and i know who it's for and you know when i do a decapitation it's done in a tasteful way <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I have not really had too much interference by studio or network. There have been occasions, but they've been few and far between, mainly because I've been working with people like Steven Spielberg and Stephen King, who do have the power to say no and 
on my behalf, but you save your moments. You know, you don't want to ask King to come to bat for you unless that's the only answer to your problem, uh, because you don't want to be doing that more than once or twice during the course of a hundred day shoot. You know. So you just mentioned hocus pocus. What do you attribute that alchemy to? What led to the hocus pocus craze and the huge success in your thoughts? Well, you know, I was one of 12 writers on that movie. It went through a lot of permutations, but they eventually came back to mostly, well, as you can read in the in the credits that I've, I've got three credits there, shared story credit with David Kirshner, who came up with the idea and is a brilliant artist and did American Tale, designed all those characters, all that. And first position screenplay with Neil Cuthbert. Neil Cuthbert was mainly a comedy writer brought in to do more jokes and the like. But I think it has a lot to do with female empowerment. I think the female audience is massive for that. If there's one thing the general public would know me for if so, uh, and I've had this happen any female from 5 to 60 if I say you know they ask me what I've written or what I've done well I wrote Hocus Pocus oh my god <laughs> you know, it's very much part of the female popular culture in particular and being a male I didn't plan that but you know most witches were female in Salem in 1692 but I think the sense of humor combined with easily digestible horrific elements yeah. my version was a little darker than what you see on the screen now <laughs> but it, it it's it's one of those entry drugs where yeah. it is a movie for the family that does not disdain the parents that tries to entertain the parents as well as the younger audience with so it's not a painful experience to get all right i'll take you to see hocus pocus <laughs> you know i and i can't explain it or other than that because if i could then everything i'd ever done would <laughs> have that mark. But keep in mind when, when it came out in 1993, it was not a success. It was a very oh. modest box office. I think it made, you know, 30 or $40 million and it cost 40 million bucks. So it took decades for it to become this sudden icon. I mean, I go out on Halloween and I can't tell you how many Sanderson sisters I see carrying baskets mm. of candy, you know? Right. And, you know, rumors of a sequel have been bubbling for yeah. 20 years or so. So that's finally happened. Is that conf that's confirmed? Confirmed? It's happening. I don't know if they started shooting yet. I'm not involved with it other than having the material that they base the movie on. But it is happening. And I think it's for Disney Plus. I would expect come well, maybe not this October, but next October, we'll be seeing a Hocus Pocus too. And I'm fascinated to see where they take. I'm ready to see it. We've barely talked about postmortem mix. So I just have to say before we run out of time here, we're all huge fans and postmortem is an important podcast because there's not other podcasts out there that, especially if you being a filmmaker yourself, it's a very different setting for filmmakers and actors to come on and talk and they feel more open. So what was your initial inspiration for wanting to start the TV show postmortem and ultimately lead to the podcast? Well, the same thing that led me to interviewing when I was a kid, you know, a curiosity. And even though I have been working as a filmmaker for over 30 years, I learned something from everybody who's on there. And I love movies. I love movie making. And originally we did it as an hour long TV show or, for, or a half hour show for FearNet. And we kept the title, a podcast company, my producing partner, Joe Russo and I do the show together. And he was working with me on developing Nightmare 
cinema. And he was at a party where he met somebody from Podcast One, and they're the biggest podcast company in the world. And so they wanted to meet. And when we did, it's like they were trying to talk us into why Podcast One was such a great place for us. And it was not like us pitching a show. So we did it there. I mean, it, it wasn't the best fit for us. And we've been in many homes since before landing at Dread Central, where we are now, and very happily. I've always had a curiosity, and I love talking about movies and asking the questions. If I'm interested, I think the audience will be interested. And the perspective of filmmaker to filmmaker does make people open up more. And a lot of these people are my friends. A lot of them I've never met before. But it's, as you know, as podcasters, your job is to make people feel comfortable enough to reveal themselves. And so it's really fun to have conversation that just happens to be public, but hopefully in a way that people forget there's an audience. And we're just talking about their inspirations and what makes them excited and how they approach different projects or challenges and like. It's it's really thrilling to to do that. We're in our fifth year and I look at our guest list. We've done over a hundred interviews and I go, Jesus, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman, Whoopi Goldberg, John Carpenter, all these people. And it's Roger Corman. Uh, Roger Corman. Yeah, that was one of the best ones. Yeah. It was really great. Are there any more white whales lurking for you out there that you want to put on the slab? Oh, there are definitely people that we hopefully will be putting on the slab. There are people that you would know of who have said they would be glad to do it, but haven't done it yet. And we'll get them. You know, the the sad thing (laughs) was we were going to get George Romero. You know, I was talking to Toby Hooper about scheduling a date two days before he passed away. Um, Wes Craven was going to be on the show, you know, not having the three of them. We, We had Toby on the TV show and we did a tribute to him that included the soundtrack from the TV show, but not having Wes and George and Larry Cohen was another one we were talking to about doing it. They were all good friends and they were all people who it was time to have them on and we were just too late. And and that breaks my heart. Those were the white whales because I'll never be able to. So what would you say to date is the best advice you've received in terms of filmmaking? Probably when I was doing Amazing Stories, I was directing an episode and Steven Spielberg had asked me to storyboard the whole thing. And then he sat down with me for a couple of hours going over it just to see what I had in mind. And that was like two hours of film school, but it was mainly him going, yeah, that's good. That's great. And he had one suggestion, but what he said to me that was the best advice ever was don't worry about getting an idea that would get you fired. No matter how crazy your idea is, we're never going to fire you. You know, don't hold back because you think it's not what people expect. And that was incredibly freeing because yeah, a network or another production company or producer, they want you to make your shows all match on a narrative series. But this was an anthology and he just really inspired me to be creative and to use good ideas and not be afraid of doing something. Because the first thing I directed Fuzzbucket, you know, is very blandly directed. It, it, you know, as I'm making it, I think, oh, this is a great crane shot. Oh, these things. Well, those are every day. And I had never done it before and nobody had ever told me how to do it, but it was just from watching movies. And then I realized that the pacing was flat. You know, some of the funny things don't work well. They don't translate as well as you imagined they would on the set. But to go ahead and exercise your imagination and go reach for something that might be beyond your grasp. So we're all fans of the horror anthology and you're responsible for some of the best. I wanted to ask, why do you feel that the horror genre specifically works so well in such a, the short medium? Well, 
not too short. You know, the half hour <laughs> ones, uh, <laughs> the half hour ones don't work that well, I don't think, because then they're punchline shows. Right. You know, when you've got a, a an O. Henry story that if you guess the punchline or it's uh, the punchline is not really, oh my God, then you've just wasted a half an hour. But when you've got an hour, you've got a beginning, a middle and an end. And to have a self-contained movie, just like short horror fiction, you know, if it has an arc to it, if it feels like a little movie and is self-contained, you know, when I was in my early adult years, I didn't watch much series television because it didn't interest me. I wasn't interested in getting to know that family that would come into my living room every night. I was more interested in movies. And so the Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, even their later iterations, those held my interest much more than, you know, St. Elsewhere or New York Blues or things like that, NYPD Blue, things like that. I just didn't have the time or the interest to get to know who those characters are. I watch more narrative television shows now than I did then. Things like Succession, so many really interesting things that are not necessarily horror shows, but those too, American Horror Story and Haunting of Hill House and things like that. That really works in a narrative format, but I've always liked movies. And so with, you know, I did a, a Tales from the Crypt episode as a director, as well as Freddy's Nightmares, and then doing Nightmare Cinema and doing Masters of Horror. It just really appeals to me to have a, a broad variety and, and a wide umbrella over what there's ghost stories, there's zombie stories, there's emo horror, there's vampire, you know, every kind of horror story, and they don't have to match. And I, and I love that. I think that's the beautiful thing about Masters of Horror. Well said. Easily one of up there with Tales from the Crypt for my favorite horror anthology show. And our, the only bad thing about it is there's only two seasons, I think. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. that's the only complaint. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good complaint. I'd rather, have, <laughs> I'd rather celebrate making 23 than uh, commiserate, no, commiserate going for a 39 and they not be as good. So. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very true. So, Mick, in the last few days, you've released your biography. Was Did you just yeah. write it? You had time during the pandemic? Was now just the time? Well, it's not an autobiography. It's a biography. So I didn't write it. Oh, okay. And it is to this day, a befuddlement for me because, you know, I've done a lot of work, but in the shadows, you know, I, I'm not a name brand. I'm not George Romero. I'm not Clive Barker. I'm not Stephen King. And Abby Bernstein, who wrote it, who's been a friend for decades, kept asking me if I could do one. And I said, you know, I don't know why anyone would want one, but if you can find a publisher who does, then I guess so. And she found a very enthusiastic publisher with ATB. But it's so weird to me that anyone would be interested in reading a biography of me. But the responses have been phenomenal. The, the reviews that have come out so far have been great. Abby did a great job of it. She talked to a lot of the people I worked with, a lot of my friends and family. And it's a very unique kind of biography, the way she structured it and all. And it's very weird. I I, I now have a, a resource book on me. <laughs> And it's just the weirdest feeling. You know, I keep saying my mother's dead. Who's going to buy it? (laughs) Don't don't sell yourself short. It's well-deserved. Now, well, I mean, I was going to say, to be fair, I mean, you say you're 
always in the shadows and stuff. I mean, you need to say that in the past tense. You were. But see, my generation, we have now grown up. You have now become a pilot in the horror. I mean, we've got a whole lot of heads on the horror Mount Rushmore. But I mean, you just, you are there just <laughs> uh, as much as anybody else. Just uh, because of, well, when your stuff came out, we were little and we were impressionable. It's just that little window of time from like 5 to 13 that really makes that impact. And, you know, if you're a horror fan, you generally, most people could probably trace back some sort of event to around that time period when they saw whatever movie or read whatever book and that's what kept them in the scene. You are now part of that. So I would honestly say it's just why now? <laughs> why haven't <laughs> haven't you had a biography before now? But well, still, yeah, you absolutely deserve it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoy the book. It's it's she did a really good job. So I like to ask all of our guests this question, Nick. So what's your go-to movie snack? Like what's that one perfect thing that you just have to have to snack on that just completes your movie watching experience makes it that total sensory just yeah well, I must admit to having the most mundane answer possible. It's popcorn, <clears throat> whether it's home or in a movie theater. However, I'm a vegan, so I don't get the buttered popcorn. We bring olive oil and put it on. So okay. popcorn with olive oil. There's there's the go-to answer. It's a nice alternative. I didn't even yeah. think. You should. Yeah, it's it, great. And no animal product. Yeah. A plus. Yeah. <laughs> mundane popcorn. Just There's something about popcorn that's just magical. A movie without popcorn is special. Especially in a theater, just ain't complete. It, exactly. It's not it completes movie. me. Yeah. <laughs> Mick, we're not going to hold you hostage all afternoon here. So I guess we'll wrap up by just tell folks what you have on the horizon if you got anything else coming up. Well, the book is brand new, just came out this week. And the things I have on the horizon right now, Clive Barker and I are working together on doing an anthology show of all original Clive Barker stories. He's written 10 new original stories. We're taking it out now. We'll see what happens with it, but the stories are killer. It will really be game changing if this happens the way we hope it will. Ooh. And uh, Damn, that's a bombshell. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. There you go. And then I've I've actually written a screenplay that uh, is called Jimmy Miracle that is not a horror movie. It's much more of a mainstream studio type movie, but it's something real near a really terrific production company called Chronicle. And we are, it's all African-American characters. So we're looking for a great black director to do this. I don't want to direct it because I don't think it would be appropriate. Right. Well, Mr. Garris, it has been our pleasure to speak with you. We don't have anything else for you. We don't want to keep you. Thank you, um, man. Dude, it's been great. Thanks so much. Oh, no, it was a blast. Thanks a lot. I had a good time. Yeah. Anytime you want to come back, I won't pick your brain as much as, you know, <laughs> the first interview. I just want to make sure I carve out anything that I need to know or wanted to know. <laughs> and uh, so yeah next time we just yeah we'll be more relaxed that's why i'm here that's why i'm here you can pick my brain all you want you're welcome all anytime right, all right guys thank you Make thank you man you take care bye-bye Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, inviting all you fans of Monsters, Madness, and Magic to check out my podcast, Rants from the Black Lodge. 
What are we all about? Well, let me lay some inside baseball on you. The first of each month, myself and the Rant Army dissect some of cinema's greatest horror and cult films with in-depth retrospectives. Then on the 15th of each month, we present something a little more lighthearted with a fun watch-along commentary for some of cult films' more underappreciated offerings. Rants from the Black Lodge can be found on all major platforms, so hop on over to your app of choice and give us a sub. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge, and for the love of Cthulhu, hop over and check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. Oh yeah, and please continue to support all the great content by our friends at Monsters, Madness, and Magic.